This morning, we are back in chapter 9 of the book of Matthew, starting in verse 18. Um, it's kind of an interesting passage. It's another one of those that is covered in all three of the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, in this particular passage, we're going to see Jesus do, do two things. Number one, he's going to restore a young girl to life. And number two, he's going to restore life to a woman in the crowd. Um, so that's, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Last week and, and the week before, just to, to kind of tie all of this together in the chapter, um, last week Jesus closed out his discussion with the disciples of John concerning fasting. And he closed it out with those kind of weird, off-the-wall statements about you don't patch an old cloth with new cloth that hasn't been shrunk yet. And you don't put new wine into an old wineskin, new wine that hasn't been fermented yet. Because in both cases, you would wind up destroying the old instead of preserving it. Because that's why we put a patch on clothes, right? I remember being a kid, just like every young kid that I know, I was hard on blue jeans. Mom will agree with me on this. I was very hard on blue jeans. And my blue jeans got patched more times than I care to admit, particularly right about here, right? Why do we patch blue jeans? To make them last longer, exactly. So you wouldn't want to put a patch on that was going to destroy them. You wouldn't want to destroy your wineskin if you're trying to produce new wine. That's just, it doesn't make any sense. So he was talking about himself bringing the new covenant, not just coming to put a patch on the old covenant. And then the week before that, when uh, Jesus called Matthew, and, and then he was questioned by the Pharisees because he was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, the, the dregs of society, when Jesus finished that statement, when he finished that answer to the Pharisees, he pointed out from God's word, from the prophets, uh, particularly it was Hosea, I believe, who said, I desire mercy, not the knowledge of God. God would rather we be lesser theologians and greater in mercy and taking care of people. And, and this passage here this morning, uh, chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, Jesus is going to demonstrate both of these principles in action. So as we normally do, I'm going to have everybody stand for the recognition that this is God's word. This is not Bill's word. I didn't make this up. God inspired it. Now hear what the word of the Lord says. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went through all that district. 
Let's pray. Father, as unusual as these occurrences are uh, to our minds, help us to see the truth and the application for the way we live. We, we may not have uh, the, the ability, we may not have the faith required to raise somebody from the dead or to heal someone who is sick. But Father, help us to see that we can indeed be merciful and we can be gracious and we can reach out to those who are hurting and we can comfort them and minister to them as they need. Father, help us to understand your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. So, if you're the kind of person that takes notes and you want to make a note of this, this particular event is recorded in Mark chapter 5, verses 22 through 43, and in Luke chapter 8, verses 41 through 56, and Matthew 9, 18 through 26. Luke 8, 41 through 56. If you go out and read them, if you read Mark's account, and then you read Matthew, and then you read Luke, you will notice that all three of them emphasize different things in the account. We've talked about this before. That doesn't mean they're in conflict. It means they have different perspectives. They have different ideas that God is using to give us his word. Uh, One thing that Matthew does that is different than most of Matthew's gospel, you'll notice in verse 18, he actually tells us where in time this happened in relation to the last event. He starts off in verse 18. He says, well, he was saying these things. So it was while Jesus was talking to the disciples of John about the not using a new patch on old fabric and not putting new wine into old wineskins, this ruler comes to Jesus and kneels down to talk to him. Um, Jesus was, was talking about his lack of adherence to their traditions. They, they, were, they were asking about fasting. Why do we fast? Why do the Pharisees fast? But your disciples don't. It was kind of a veiled question. Jesus, why don't you follow the traditions of the Jews? And that's where Jesus said that I'm not just here to patch up the old covenant. Now, Matthew tells us that a ruler came in and knelt before him. What kind of ruler? It was not a measuring stick. That would be a good conclusion. Until you go and look, what? It was a ruler of the synagogue. If you go look at Mark and Luke, they both tell us that he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, a ruler of the synagogue is not a rabbi. Now, we know what rabbis are, right? Or at least we think we do. A rabbi is a Jewish teacher. A rabbi would be the Jewish equivalent of me. The person who is responsible for reading the scripture and teaching the scripture but the rabbi this is where i'm different from the rabbi the rabbi would not be the one to pick the scripture the ruler of the synagogue was a person who was responsible for selecting the scripture that was to be read 
the ruler of the synagogue was responsible for all of the maintenance and upkeep on the synagogue. It was the, the, the ruler of the synagogue. That was their job, was to take care of it and to make sure that there was a rabbi to teach on the Sabbath. This would have been a very prominent person in the city of Capernaum. Because we're still up there around the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus had his headquarters there in Capernaum. He would have been a very powerful man. He would have been somebody of note, somebody of uh, prominence, somebody who could have basically written his own way anywhere in that city. And his name was Jairus. He comes to Jesus, and he does something really, really unusual. For a person of his prominence, he comes in, and let me, let me read verse 18 again. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. That word translated as knelt here in some of your bibles it may be translated differently as i was studying i went out and i looked through the greek because i like to know what the greek word is and i looked at seven different english translations in three of those translations it's the word knelt okay so y'all know what it means to kneel right i would do it here but makes my knees hurt all right Two of them use the word bow or bowed, so he bowed down before Jesus, with one of them adding he bowed low before Jesus. Now, there's a big difference. Now, I am going to do it because I have to. So there's a big difference between this, which is kneeling, and bowing, which is this, right? And bowing low, which kind of comes down to like, this right so two use the word bowed three use the word knelt but two of them translate the word as worshiped and worship is a good translation of the picture that the greek word paints the greek word is proskyneo, proskyneo, which, if you look it up in a Greek dictionary, and I know I'm probably the only nerd in here that does this kind of thing because that's what I get paid to do when I enjoy it. If you look it up in a Greek dictionary, pros and kyneo are two separate words. And in the Greek, what they do is they take those two separate words and go, and they make one word out of them. We, in English, do the same thing with words that we steal from other languages, like German. Okay? I'll give you an example from a popular car company. Tim, you drive one. It's a Volkswagen. It's a people car. Right? So we do that with words in the English language. So the word pros is the word for dog. And the word kineo is the word for a dog licking or kissing its master's hand. Now, if you've ever owned a dog, right, or if you've ever been around a dog, 
you're sitting down and the dog comes up and they nuzzle your hand, that is a, 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 we take it at least, we read it as a sign of affection, as a sign of adoration on behalf of the dog. The dog comes up and just nuzzles us and loves us. That's what dogs do. They're a very touchy-feely, affectionate animal. So this word in the Greek is the idea of a dog laying itself at its master's feet in adoration. That's what the man did with Jesus sitting at the table. He laid himself flat. This is a guy who is in charge of the synagogue. This is the ruler of the teaching center for the religious life of all the Jews in Capernaum. And he came to Jesus and he laid down at his feet. That's a lot more than good sir. Right? There's a big difference there. There's a huge difference there. Now, I don't think that that means that the man recognized Jesus as Messiah. I don't think. Because up until this point, there has only been one creature who has recognized Jesus for who he is. Y'all remember who that was? That was the demon in the land of the uh, Gerasenes, the legion, when Jesus cast him out into the pigs. Because when Jesus approached, they said, what have you to do with us? They knew who Jesus was. I don't think this guy is recognizing here who Jesus is. And on top of that, because Jesus was a man, for for the ruler of the synagogue to worship a man would have been beyond belief. Now here's what I do think. He recognized Jesus as a prophet. He recognized Jesus as a powerful teacher. He recognized Jesus as somebody who came from God. And he recognized that he had just lost the most precious thing in his life. My daughter just died. And if you come and touch her, I know she'll be restored to life. I really think his posture was more of a posture of recognition of Jesus's authority than it was as Jesus of Messiah. But that's pure conjecture on my part, just based on the history here in Israel. Now, Mark and Luke tell us a little bit different than what Matthew does, and I think that has to do just with with perspective. Mark and Luke say that he came and said that that his daughter was about to die. Matthew says, my daughter just died. Right? There's a very similar... Uh, twist to the Greek word. It's a matter of a vowel at the end of the word, whether it's present tense or past tense. So I don't think that's a big deal, a big issue. I just wanted to let you know in case you go reading and then you come back next week and there's a contradiction in the Bible. No, no, not necessarily. Okay. Um, The Greek phrases that are used between the three make it very, very, very clear that by the time Jairus showed up to see Jesus, the expectation was that his daughter was dead. If she wasn't by the time he got to Jesus, she would be by the time they got back to the house. Jairus' name. Now, Matthew doesn't give us Jairus' name, which I think is a shame, but God inspired it. That's okay. 
his name translates into the one that God enlightens. See, now we haven't gotten there in the history of the gospel yet. We haven't got to the Philippi, uh, the Caesarea Philippi Confession. And, and when I speak of that, you guys know it as that point in time where Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, who do men say that I am? Right? And the disciples answer with the popular opinions of who Jesus is. Some say you're the prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, so on and so forth. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter has one of those profound moments where he gets it right. <laughs> you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? There you go. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. God did. Well, how did Jairus know to go to Jesus? I think this is, the, this is kind of telling about Jairus' name. The one whom God enlightens. The one that God has given insight to. I think Jairus knew to go to Jesus because of God enlightening him. God giving him the discernment to know that Jesus could do something. So he shows up and he says this. And Jesus... Verse 13 of chapter 9, to the Pharisees, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Verse 14, the disciples come to Jesus and saying, how come we fast and you don't fast? Do you see the application there? God says, I desire mercy, not religious tasks. I desire you to love people, not to blindly, blankly, and out of rote obligation to do stuff. I want you to love people. And when Jesus hears, my daughter has died, but if you come touch her, I know she'll be restored. Jesus got up and went. I desire mercy. Now let me show you what that means. He follows, now the disciples followed along as well, probably because A, Jesus is their teacher, and B, because, well, they wanted to see what was going to happen. As they're on their way, there is a pause in the narrative. There's a pause in the story. Verse 19, as Jesus is walking, we're told that this woman who has suffered with some kind of hemorrhage, and that's the Greek word that is used, is the word that we get the word hemorrhage from, for 12 years, she's in the crowd. As Jesus passes by, she reaches out and she touches his robe. And Matthew tells us that she had said in her mind, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on her disease because it really doesn't tell us what this disease was. I don't know what caused this hemorrhage, what caused this issue of blood. I don't know. It was probably some kind of female reproductive issue. However, what I do know is that it would have been an unbearable burden for this woman. Not just because of the medical ramifications, but the spiritual ramifications. According to ceremonial law, she was considered unclean all the time for the last 12 years. She might as well have had leprosy. If she was married, her husband could not touch her in a marital way, if you get my drift. 
she was shunned by the rest of society. She couldn't go to the synagogue because where she sat would have been unclean. Anything she touched would have been considered unclean. She couldn't participate in Passover because she was unclean. She couldn't participate in the Day of Atonement because she was unclean. She really was, for all intents and purposes, a leper. The only thing missing was she didn't have to wear a bell around her neck and cry out to the crowd that she was unclean. And if you know anything about human society, she didn't have to do that because people talk. There were probably murmurs in the crowd when people knew that she was there. I don't imagine she had to push her way through because as people noticed who it was, they probably went, Go ahead, dear. For fear of being unclean themselves. This woman was bold. She was courageous. Because as a pariah, as somebody who is shunned from society, not only did she have the boldness to come out and face the looks and the murmurs and the words of the crowd, Not only did she have the wherewithal to push herself to the front of the crowd so that she could make contact with Jesus, look at what she said in her mind, what she thought, what Matthew records her as saying to herself. If only I can touch his garment, I might have a chance at being made well. Is that what it said? No. No, it's not. I will be made well. You want to talk about a statement of faith. It makes Peter's statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, it makes that pale in comparison. Because she's not just convinced of who Jesus is, but what he can do and what he will do. If I can just touch his garment. She didn't think that Jesus could heal her. She knew that he would. Period. That's... That's, that's bold. Let me tell you, that's, that's right in your face, bold. And as Jesus saw her, now if you, you read in, in Luke's account, Luke tells us that Jesus turned around because he felt power go out from him when she touched his robe. He felt the... This is the creator of the universe, right? This, this isn't some, some parlor magician who pulls a rabbit out of a hat. This is the creator of the universe. He knows where his power comes from where his power goes he knows what's happening so he knew as she touched his robe he knew and he turned around now here's jesus at the house eating his meal with the 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 tax collectors and sinners and jairus comes up and says my daughter has died or my daughter is in the throes of death right now but if you come touch her she will be healed jesus gets up and he goes right and halfway there this woman touches his robe what does jesus do he stops he stops and he attends to her need instead of just brushing her off because he has a bigger purpose because he has something more flashy to do jesus is never too busy he stopped the whole procession 
to focus on this woman. And he didn't yell at her. He didn't accuse her. What do you think you're doing? That's not who Jesus is. He stopped. He looks at her. And in verse 22, we read, Seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter. That is a term of intimate connection with a person. That's how God considers us. Once we enter the household of faith, we are sons and daughters. We are his children. Jesus turns to this woman and he calls her a very tender personal term he stopped the whole procession now i'm going to pause and i'm going to ask you an application question here i'm going to i'm going to ask you to put some feet to these words as larry said we need to be bold in our prayers do you have the boldness in your prayers to reach out and touch the hem of his garment do you have the boldness to know that Jesus will answer you. Now I know I've, I've talked on this many, many, many times. And, and some people get really upset when I talk about this. I personally loathe safe prayers. I hate them. I hate them with a passion. God, if it's your will to heal this person, we're giving God an out. We're making an excuse. We're filling out an excuse slip like for school. Please let Tommy not take the test because he's got a fever today. Bobby's going to miss the game because he's not feeling well. We're giving God an excuse. If it's your will, but if it's not, we'll totally understand. If you have a loved one who's on their deathbed and you pray that way, I'm going to ask you straight up, why bother? Why bother? Because all you're doing is giving God an out. You're telling God, I think you ought to do this, but I'll understand if you don't. Do you want them healed? Would you like to see them healed? Now, we need to understand that it might not be God's will. We don't need to pray that. God's going to do His will. And if we're in tune with His will, if we know what He wants, how are we going to know what He wants? Read it. Study it. Pray. And when you're praying, shut up and listen. Just because his answer is no doesn't mean he didn't answer the prayer. We need to be bold in our prayers. We need to have this kind of boldness that this woman had. Her life was destroyed for 12 years and she was just as spiritually dead as the little girl that Jesus was going to. But she knew that Jesus would heal her. There was no hesitation. There was no, she didn't say in her mind, I know that if I touch his robe and he's willing, then I'll be healed. She didn't say, And if I'm not, then I guess it's okay. 
She knew. We need to be that bold in our prayers. God calls us sons and daughters. Now, back to the narrative. Instantly, the woman was made well. She's healed. Jesus didn't forget the purpose of his journey. Now, I don't imagine he could have forgot the purpose of his journey because standing over here, probably eight feet in front of him, is Jairus trying to figure out where Jesus went. What are you doing? What part of my daughter did you forget? He didn't. He didn't forget. He turns and he takes up the journey. He turns back to Jairus' house. And then Matthew tells us something that's just weird to our minds. They get to the house and when Jesus saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Hang on a second. The young lady just died and there's a band outside. Now, yeah. Now, have you ever been to New Orleans when there's a funeral? Okay, that's the picture. That's the picture. Now, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in New Orleans I don't approve of, but at least in that respect, culturally, there are some places where they get it right. Mourning is not something that we just kind of bury and repress and suppress and squish, and and I'm just not going to talk about it until the pain goes away. In Israel, if you had somebody, if you needed mourning, you could you could flip through the yellow pages or the 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 palestinian equivalent and you could hire a professional mourner to come to your house i don't have enough tears to mourn for the loss of that person i need somebody else americans are hard hard-headed when it comes to mourning we are so prideful we are so just wrapped up we don't know how to handle death we don't know how to handle these things jesus comes and he sees this funeral procession outside the flutes are playing and the people are mourning and they're crying and they're wailing and they're, they're throwing ashes up in the air and doing all of these weird things that we just can't wrap our heads around. And Jesus says, go away. She's not dead. She's just taking a nap. Now, this is, this is kind of funny. Um, dead isn't real hard to figure out. <laughs> now, I know we have all these cool new medical toys and stuff where we can hook up and we can actually see that there's still brain activity and and so on and so on and so on and so forth but but when it comes down to it dead is dead dead is pretty easy to understand these are professional mourners these are people who get paid to show up when people are dead right they probably know that the girl is dead when jesus shows up what did they do they laughed Jesus said she's merely asleep. You know, with the exception of those of us who have severe sleep apnea, you generally keep breathing while you're asleep. And and even those of us with apnea resume after a short period of time. (laughs) Or at least we're supposed to. If we don't, then guess what? We're no longer sleeping. We're dead. The crowd laughs. Here is this rabbi, he speaks with such authority, he speaks with such power, he speaks with such, he's got all these miracles that prove that he is a prophet sent from God and he can't tell the difference between dead and asleep.
Jesus could tell. And to the creator of the universe, dead might as well be asleep. So Jesus probably turned to Jairus and said, hey, look, get rid of the crowd. Give the mourners their pay. Send them home. You don't need them anymore. There's no reason for them to be here. So the crowd was escorted out. Matthew tells us when the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went in and took her hand and the girl arose. Mark and Luke tell us that he commanded her to rise. And Luke Luke even goes so far as to saying that her parents were astonished. You think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I imagine her mom probably fell out of the chair, right? Mark says they were overcome with amazement. I don't think I can come up with a strong enough word. Now, here's the funny thing, though, right? Jairus had gone to Jesus knowing Jesus could do this. And yet, when it happened, he was overcome with amazement. He was astonished. He was probably fainted on his floor. He was probably completely unable to wrap his head around this. Why? If he had the faith that Jesus could do this, why was he surprised? Well, let's go back a couple of pages. Uh, In chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus had commanded the disciples to cross over the Sea of Galilee in their fishing boats. And while they're crossing over, Jesus is in the bow of the ship taking a nap. And a storm comes up and the the boat's in danger of being swamped. And and Peter, the mouthpiece that has the foot in it, comes up and wakes Jesus up and says, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Do something. And then he does. And what happens? Everybody in the back of the boat. What kind of man is this? They're terrified, they're astonished, they're amazed. Even the winds and the seas obey him. You know, when, when, when Matthew tells, or when Mark and Luke tell us that they were overcome with amazement or they were astonished, that they probably includes the people that were outside mocking. Because we're told that word spreads. Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus told the parents, don't tell anybody. Yeah, that'll work. They had already hired a crowd to come mourn. What is that crowd going to think after laughing at Jesus when the next day they see the parents and the little girl walking through the park? They were astonished. They were blown away. And Matthew tells us that the report of this miracle spread throughout all the district. A miracle of this size cannot be kept secret. Raising a person from death to life. Somebody has to know. Somebody has to be told. If only there was a spiritual equivalent that we had some kind of common familiarity with. Huh. Flip over to the book of Ephesians real quick. I'm going to do something strange. This is not normal for me. But I'm not normal. Ephesians chapter 2, by the way, in case anybody was ever, ever curious what the preacher's favorite passage was, it would have to be Ephesians chapter 2. 
get to Galatians, take a right. If you make it to Philippians, you've gone too far. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, going through the first part of verse 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him. Even when we were really, really, really bad off in sin. Is that what it says? It says dead. Dead. What can a dead person do? Nothing. A dead person does nothing. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him. Huh. How about that? There is a spiritual equivalent. So let me tell you, Since the miracle of that size had to spread, and everybody who's in here who claims the name of Christ has experienced what Paul wrote there in Ephesians. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with Christ. Then it seems like, and maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, it seems like. News of that ought to spread throughout the district. News of that ought to spread throughout the land. And yet, throughout the church, less than 10% of believers ever share their faith. Twenty people. Plus me. 20 people. That means, on average, statistically, no more than two have ever shared their faith. I know statistics can be made to say a lot of things, and, and, and we may be the exception to those statistics, and that takes averages from across all of the church, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. But those statistics exist for a reason. If out of a group this size, only two have ever shared their faith, what's wrong with us? That's right. It's the reason the church was commissioned before Jesus ascended into heaven. The reason he told the disciples... To go make disciples. Because we have to tell people. That's how God designed it. I don't know why. I don't know why he chose to do it that way. Other than to give us the opportunity to participate in his ministry. He could have in an instant. When Jesus ascended into heaven. It could have been visible to all mankind. And everybody could have known the truth of the gospel. Right then. But that's not the way he did it. He could have made it so that we knew it when we were born. That our first conscious thought was of the the truth of the gospel. But he didn't. He relies on us to spread the word. 
Are we being obedient? Are we doing what we were commissioned to do as a church? Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced being commissioned for something. You know, having, having that experience in the military, you know, we have officers who get commissioned. That's how they earn their rank is that they get commissioned by the president to do things. They are sent on a mission, commission. The, the root word is their mission, right? And, and the, the word that mission comes from, missio, is something that is sent or fired, shot. It's the same word we get missile from. Jesus told us to go. He told us to tell people. Are we being obedient? 